We've been looking for some time now at the issue of where do we go from here. Um, and what I've tried to do is to lay a foundation for discussion, for conversation that I hope will be ongoing. Um, I began as a pastor a little more than 45 years ago. Dan and Lonnie were with, uh, were with me then. And my pattern then was to study a book of the Bible in Sunday school. And we began with Genesis, okay? But in the worship service, it was normal for me to do a topical sermon, um, usually an evangelistic sermon. But after a period of time, I think more than a year, um, I began to preach through books of the Bible, and I began with the Gospel of Mark. And since then, um, I have, in fact, preached or taught through um, most of the Bible. Topical series occur now and then. But there are two books in the Old Testament that I have never taught from or preached on. The first is the Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs. The second is Ezekiel. And I've been thinking for some time now that Ezekiel is a book we should study, particularly given where we are right now in our history. It is a difficult book. As one commentator opened his commentary, for most Bible readers, Ezekiel is almost a closed book. But Ezekiel is scripture. And Paul told Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we should study the book of Ezekiel, and that's what we're going to do. So if you want to open your Bibles there, you can, Ezekiel chapter 1. You may have noticed, you've probably noticed, that I have great affection for the Old Testament. It provides the background for the New Testament. The New Testament does not make sense as it should without the Old Testament. If you take away the Old Testament, you can make the New Testament mean just about anything that you want. The Old Testament through stories, as we've seen, defines basic concepts that we find in the New Testament. It provides symbols that are fleshed out in the New Testament. So you have the 12 tribes of Israel and Jesus chooses 12 disciples. Um, otherwise, why he chose 12 doesn't really, you know, doesn't register on our radar until we remember that there were the 12 tribes of Israel. Without the Old Testament, we would have no poetry. Our poetry comes from the Old Testament. And it is quoted time and again in the New Testament that oftentimes people don't realize, oh, that's actually from the book of Psalms. Consider some of the words of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, verse 1. Or into your hands I commit my spirit. It's from Psalm 31, verse 5. When it came to the matter of replacing Judas one of the 12 who betrayed Jesus and then committed suicide. Peter said, It is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. That's from the book of Psalms. Peter tells us so. We also see in the New Testament church the place of Psalms in public worship. Paul writes, to the Ephesians, speak to one another with psalms 
hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of this to say that I think the Old Testament is quite important. But oftentimes it is quite difficult to understand, as is the case with Ezekiel. But I'm convinced for all its difficulties, it has much to teach us, if we would but listen. As is usually the case when we begin a study of a new, a new book, a book we haven't studied in the Bible, the first sermon is intended to give foundational material to guide us through our study of the book. Today we're going to look at and consider some important questions uh, dealing with the book of Ezekiel. The first question is, who was Ezekiel? The opening verses give us some clue. If you look at the first three verses, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the 50th year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzai, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. So we learn certain things about Ezekiel right off the bat. First of all, he was a priest. He's also a prophet, but he was first of all a priest, as was the case with Isaiah and Jeremiah. Oftentimes we say, well, we have the priest over here and we have the prophets over here. Well, we have at least three of the major prophets who were both priests and prophets. He is in exile as he writes this. He is in Babylon, taken into exile in the year 597 B.C., when the armies of Nebuchadnezzar captured Jerusalem. They took with them King Jehoiakim, along with all the officers and fighting men and all the craftsmen and artisans, a total of 10,000. This happened when he was 25. As the book opens, he is 30 years old. You'll notice it says in the 30th year, and the NIV has a footnote, in my 30th year. He was 30 years old when he was called to be a prophet. Um, Worth noting, a man could begin to serve as a priest when he was 30 years old and could serve until he was 50. Um, It is also the age at which Jesus began his public ministry. Luke writes, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. So he was 25 when he was taken with King Jehoiakim into exile. And he lived at least until the age of 52. We'll see that when we get to chapter 29. Beyond that, we know little about this man. Um, We know that he had a wife and that his wife died in chapter 24. We will look at that. His ministry took place in Babylon, not in Judah or Judea, not in Jerusalem, but in Babylon. The Kibar River, a major tributary of the Euphrates River. And he apparently had liberty to move around freely. Being in exile didn't mean you were in a prison camp. Okay? It wasn't a concentration camp. You may remember what Jeremiah wrote to the exiles. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. So to be in exile does not mean to be in prison. 
What were the historical circumstances of his life? We don't know much about him. We know more about the historical background in which he lived. To say that he lived in interesting times would be an, inter- it would be an understatement. Internationally, it is a time of transition. As, as he is young, when he's born, Assyria is the world power, but is in decline. Egypt uh, rises up for a short period of time, but then Babylon becomes the major world power. Internally, he lived during the reign of five different kings. And they are, well, quite different. The first was Josiah. Josiah is one of the great kings of of, uh, Judah. He is remembered for the religious revival that he brought among God's people and repairing the temple. We read, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. During his reign, a copy of the Bible, their Bible, the Torah, was found in the temple. Apparently for years, no one had a copy of scripture and they find it and he has it read uh, and he leads the people of God to repentance and to revival. They renew the covenant with God. Well, that's the good part. After that, it's all downhill. He is replaced by Jehoaz, who reigns a total of three months. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his fathers had done. Then he is replaced by Jehoiakim, who reigns 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father did, we read. And then Jehoiakim, this is the one who was taken into exile, along with Ezekiel. He reigned for a total of three months. Um, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. Finally, there is Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the last king. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. It is during the time of Zedekiah that Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. And Ezekiel, even though he is hundreds of miles away in Babylon, In a vision, he sees this, and he writes about it. So Ezekiel lived in the time of a great king, a godly king, and then through the reigns of wicked kings, the result of which is that Judah was taken into exile. What is the message of this book? If we could put it into two phrases, it would be, God will destroy, God will restore. Okay. But these two principles have underneath them sort of this foundation of, uh, of doctrine, of theology, of what it is that Ezekiel believed. The first is the holiness of God. This will be our focus as the book opens today. But we should understand that all prophecy begins with the character of the God who inspires it. I mean, God is a holy God. If God is a wicked God, then we probably don't have to believe what he has to say, but he is a holy God. Usually when we think of holiness, and we find this in scripture, we think about moral character. So in Isaiah, the holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. So one who is holy does good things. But in fact, to be holy is to be separate, and it is to be in relationship. 
to be cut off from ordinary relations. So in a real sense, God is holy to the rest of the world, but he is joined in covenant with his people. The holy God of Israel did not possess this quality. He was this quality. He was the Holy One of Israel. More on this in a bit. The second thing we see is the sinfulness of Israel. We will come to this in chapters 12 through 24, in which you have different factions among the Jewish people. Some think, okay, God punished us and we deserved it, but, you know, that's, it's enough, okay? We've had enough punishment. We've, you know, it all balances out. We did wicked, God punished us, and, you know, we're sort of balanced out, so, you know, he needs, he needs to cut it out. The others say, actually, we are suffering not because of anything we did, but because of what our forefathers did. It's our ancestors. They did wicked things, and now we are suffering the consequences of their actions. There's still a third group who think, now we know who God really is, and that is he is weaker than the gods of Babylon because he could not protect us from being taken into exile. Ezekiel will answer each of these. And I think he will make a strong case that they are unworthy of any, any consideration of God or any grace of God. He wants them to repent, which of the three factions, none of them have repented. The third thing we see is the fact of judgment. This is not new. We find this throughout the Old Testament. If you do wrong, God will judge you. But oftentimes, it has been a threat of judgment versus the judgment itself. Before chapter 33, Jerusalem's still there. Yeah, 10,000 people were taken in exile, but Jerusalem's still there. The temple's still standing. But we read in chapter 33, verse 21, In the twelfth month of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has fallen. Judgment, in fact, had come. A recurring phrase we will see as we go through Ezekiel is, I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. The judgment is real. It isn't just threats. It, in fact, will happen. Then fourthly, and this I think I find really fascinating, and that is individual responsibility. The people of God were taken, as a group, into exile. And so I think oftentimes when we think about the Old Testament, we tend to think of institutional sin, structural sin, Israel as a nation did bad, and so Israel as a nation was punished. And it's in the New Testament that we begin to think of individuals, that an individual must accept Christ as his or her personal savior. But throughout Ezekiel, the prophet is at pains, as one commentator puts it, to say that every person is treated as an individual by God. It's not your ancestry, your heredity. It's not your environment, the nation that you came from, but your personal choice. In chapter 9, we will read, Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherubim, where it had been, and moved to the threshold of the temple, Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had a writing kit at his side and said to him, 
go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. In other words, God sends out a man, perhaps an angel, to go through the city and everyone who mourns over the wickedness of Jerusalem, a mark would be put on his or her forehead. It continues. As I listen, he said to the others, okay, there isn't just one angel or one individual, follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion, slaughter old men, young men and maidens, women and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. It's hard to understand, but I think it's good for us to recognize here at the beginning that the individual is responsible before God. You can't say, well, it's my parents, my grandparents, it's where I came from, it's my environment. Uh, No, you are responsible. And then the last part, this foundation, is the promise of restoration. In contrast to the individual as being responsible, the restoration isn't simply of the individual, but of the community. That God's people, the people of Israel, would in fact be restored. And this is seen most clearly in perhaps the one passage people know about Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37, the vision of the valley of dry bones. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And in this amazing vision, they are brought to life. Today, let's look at two things. The first is the call of Ezekiel, and then the beginning of the call of Ezekiel, the vision of the Lord. One of the problems we have with prophets as such is that someone could simply say, I'm a prophet. God has called me to be a prophet. I'm a prophet. And then he could say whatever he wanted to. He could, you know, out of his own delusion, if you would. Usually he said what people wanted to hear. You know, if you want to be popular, uh, the way to do it is to say what people want to hear. This was a problem that Jeremiah faced. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, and idolatries, and the delusions of their own minds. It goes on to say, the prophets prophesy lies, the priests rule by their own authority, and my people love it this way. So when somebody comes along and says, I'm a prophet, and begins to say things that we like to hear, nobody questions his credentials. I hope you were listening as Zib read today when John the Baptist is asked if he is a prophet. And what does he say? No. That's amazing. Here he is the one sent before the Messiah, but he does not claim something that has not been given to him. So we know that false prophets do this, but how do you know if somebody really is a true prophet? Okay. Um, Chapters 1, 2, and 3 will help us answer that question. The credentials of Ezekiel are set forth in these first three chapters. So, we read this earlier in the 30th year in the fourth month. On the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. 
On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzai, by the Kibar in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. You will notice that Ezekiel is introduced twice. First of all, in verse number one, it is first person. Okay? And by the way, almost all of the book of Ezekiel is first person. It's autobiographical. Verses two and three are the exception. It's third person where someone is talking about Ezekiel. He said, I saw visions of God. We need to understand that a vision is both objective and subjective. That is, there is someone who is to be seen in the vision, but there is also the one who enables us to see the vision. What is it like to have a vision? What sort of an event is a prophetic vision? Um, Based on scripture, I would say it is much like a dream. On the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes from the book of Joel, chapter 2. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. So I would say that dreams and visions are in the same category. But we should not imagine that these are ordinary dreams. Because we all dream. These are dreams that are brought by God. So in verse number three, the hand of the Lord was upon him. Something that we could gloss over very quickly and and we should not. And that is, if you consider it, the prophetic books in the Old Testament are usually dated and given a geographical location. Okay. So in verse number one, the 30th year, fourth month, fifth day, it's like, what's up with this? I mean, why, why are you giving us this? calendar okay in order for the truth to be firmly displayed the prophet first must sink his roots in history this is who i am this is where i am when i am so ezekiel's not in a jerusalem he's not in the promised land he's in exile we need to know that and we know when this happened it wasn't like oh i had this mystical experience can't remember when exactly and can't imagine you know, what it was. No, very, very specific. It was at a specific time in a very specific place. Um, one more thing. This was a conversation I had with my mother earlier today. She's been doing a Bible study with her great-granddaughter. I thought no one could see God. And yet it seems that Ezekiel will have a vision of God. Bear with me. We will see it uh, beginning today, but continuing, Lord willing, next week. What did Ezekiel see exactly? Now we come to the difficult part of chapter 1. It begins in verse number 4. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. It is possible that Ezekiel's hanging out in Kibar by the, end of the, by the edge of the river, and he sees what we would call a natural phenomenon, maybe a thunderstorm. But it is in this natural phenomenon that God reveals himself. I'll just tell you parenthetically, there are certain rabbis who taught that anyone under the age of 30 should not be allowed to read Ezekiel chapter 1. They considered it to be holy ground. 
It is a vision of the glory of God. This is not something to be trifled with. I'm going to read all the verses a bit at a time, not necessarily explain everything, but I want you to come away with a sense that this doesn't make sense, okay? This is beyond my pay grade, okay? This is difficult. Verse 5, And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man. But each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like that of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces were like this. Each of the four had the face of a man. On the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side, and two wings covering its body. One commentator has referred to these creatures as the four grotesque living creatures. They are similar to what we read in Revelation chapter 4. It is in verse 22, which we'll get to in a few minutes, that we see what in fact they are doing. They are supporting the expanse, the platform in which, on which is the throne of the living God. They appear to have human bodies. They have four faces, four wings. Uh, the wings are not used for flying. We will see later that they vibrate, but they don't fly. It is to support this platform, this expanse. They have four hands, the purpose of which we will see when we get to chapter 10. Why these four faces? It's been argued that they represent, in fact, the highest form of life among the different realms of God's creation. Man made in the image of God. The lion is a king of wild animals. The ox is that of domesticated animals. So you have cattle and wild creatures in Genesis chapter 1. And then the eagle is seen as sort of the king of the birds of the air. When we get to chapter 10, we will see, could these in fact be cherubim? We think of cherubs, you know, these cute little chunky baby angels. Uh, I don't think that's what a cherub is. We'll see as we go along. Why the four different types of faces? Again, this is all speculation. It shows the majesty, the strength, the wisdom, the loftiness. But I think, I think, bottom line, they represent God's creation. And it is, in fact, in God's creation that God's glory is seen. In Isaiah chapter 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And these creatures, in essence, represent the glory of God in physical form. Verse 12, Each went straight ahead. Wherever the Spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures were like burning coals or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be like a wheel intersecting a wheel. 
The rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out one toward another, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then came a voice from above their heads, I'm sorry, from above the expanse over their heads, and they stood with lowered wings. This is just difficult. But I think that is the intent. Somehow we imagine that we can figure what God looks like, that we can handle it, that we have the ability, we have the intelligence, we have the spiritual strength to comprehend God. And boy, you read this part of Ezekiel and it's like, I I don't get it. I, I understand the words. I can sort of picture what it's like in my head, but beyond that, it is above our understanding. Verses 26 and 27. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. I find it fascinating, and tell me if you would agree, that Ezekiel gives really detailed descriptions of the four creatures and the wheels and all that kind of stuff. But when he sees this, what looks like a man on the throne, It is as though he's at a loss for words. I want more detail, Ezekiel. Tell us more. But he does not. But look at verse number 28. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. Now we begin to have a sense that these living creatures which represent God's creation, above them is the glory of God. It's interesting, he doesn't say that it is God, it is the glory of God. And what does he do when he begins to hear the voice speak? I fell face down. This is the natural reaction. When you come, when God's presence comes to you, it is natural that you would fall face down. We see this in Revelation chapter 1, John the Apostle. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed with a robe reaching down to his feet and a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool and as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. 
His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. John then writes, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. In the case of John, the apostle, and Ezekiel, the prophet, they are going to be commissioned by God to do something. John is going to write the book of Revelation. Ezekiel is going to give the prophecies that are compiled and made into the book of Ezekiel. And what happens? They salute and say, reporting for duty, or stand there and say, I'm ready, just tell me what to do. In the presence of God, they fall on their face as though dead. So in chapter 2, verse 1, he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And then the beginning of the call, the commission to Ezekiel to preach to a rebellious people. The Lord willing, we will continue our study next Sunday. Let me just say here at the beginning that the opening chapter of Ezekiel may seem weird. It may seem strange. In part because what is intended is not very, very clear. We would prefer something to be a lot more clear to us. The problem is ours. We imagine that we have the capacity to comprehend a holy God. A God in all his majesty. God is what academics call other. We're here, he's other. And for some reason, and to be fair, I think with the incarnation, Jesus came and lived among us. And so we have this sense that we can have a relationship with God. But God and his glory and his fullness, we cannot comprehend. As one writer put it, the vision of the Lord given to Ezekiel was unutterably splendid, mysteriously intricate, superhuman and supernatural, infinitely mobile, never earthbound, all-seeing and all-knowing. This is how God revealed himself to Ezekiel. Not by propositions. It's not like here, Ezekiel, write this down. Let me tell you about my characteristics, who I am as God. It is by a personal encounter. And it is an encounter that is overwhelming. But this sets the stage for Ezekiel to now be a prophet. He was a priest, but now he is commissioned to be a prophet to preach to the people of God. And it begins with a sense of awe and holy fear. It is said of Charles Spurgeon, who was a famous pastor in 19th century London, uh, that before every sermon he preached, he would be in the back room and someone would be leading the music. When he was in the back, before every sermon he would vomit. He would throw up. Because he realized what an awesome responsibility to handle the word of God and to share it with God's people. And the deacons were really, they were really quite amazed that their pastor seemed more nervous than the guest speakers. 
Well, I think Spurgeon had a sense, as Ezekiel did, of the awesome responsibility. A true prophet is marked by awe and holy fear. A false prophet, on the other hand, can chatter glibly about God because he's never met God. I remember years ago watching a TV evangelist. He's walking back and forth on the platform. He's like, okay, Lord, I'll tell them. I'll get to it in a minute. I'm like, really? This is how you speak to God? Look at Ezekiel. I think now we are ready to listen to what Ezekiel has to say because we have a sense that he's a true prophet. This vision of God in the first chapter reminds us that he is the God of all creation. This is my father's world. He is the creator and sustainer of all. And the fact that Ezekiel is given this vision by the river Kibar off the Euphrates in Babylon, modern-day Iraq, not back in Israel, not back in Judah, I think is a good reminder that God is not limited. God could not simply speak to prophets in this special place. He is the God of all creation, and he is now commissioning Ezekiel to preach to his people and call them to repentance. It's my prayer that as we go through the book of Ezekiel, we will learn and apply what we learn from this wonderful book. Let's pray together. Father, we prefer to have things simple and straightforward, easy to grasp. So when we open the book of Ezekiel, we might become discouraged, somewhat disoriented, and perhaps want to put it to the side. But it is scripture. And here at the beginning of our study, we come to learn something important. That you have commissioned Ezekiel. And he was able, in some manner, that we do not understand, to see your glory. And when he saw your glory, he was filled with awe and godly fear. I think now we're ready to listen to what he has to say. This is not someone who decided he was going to be a prophet. He was a priest by heredity, but he was a prophet by calling. Forgive us when we are glib, maybe even flippant, when we come into your presence, how easily we forget that you are the Lord God Almighty. That if we were to be confronted with your glory, we would, like John and like Ezekiel, fall flat on our faces. Ezekiel lived through difficult times, a roller coaster politically spiritually from Josiah to Zedekiah seems like a straight line down then Assyria, Egypt, Babylon internationally things were in chaos 
But as we will see, you are still in control. A good reminder that we need. We're living now where we do and when we do. I failed earlier in our time of prayer to mention our political leaders. Paul tells us that we are to pray for those in authority. And so we do pray for our mayor, our governor, our president, and others, that you would guide them, give them wisdom. They would make the right decisions. Thank you for bringing us together today. As we walk through the world in the coming week, may we have a sense of your presence. May your grace and your spirit go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.